Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. All right, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm Chip Free, the lead teaching pastor here at our one church in three locations. So glad you're here. I want to greet all of you who are worshiping with us online. Uh, we're glad that you're uh, here with us as we celebrate um, together in this season. We've been looking at the uh, Gospel of John and um, uh, John's theme of where there's night, there's light, right? Uh, Matthew and Luke tell us what happened at Christmas, but John tells us why. And, and if you read John's story of the Christmas story, I'm, I'm trying to give my signal to the crew back there. Get, there we go. Um, if you listen to John's telling the Christmas story, it's almost poetry. Some say it was a hymn, that he wrote a hymn. Today, when you came in here, uh, you probably, as Bill was saying, it had a tough time finding a parking space. Our 9 o'clock choir did Handel's Messiah. Um, and they, our children sang. And a lot of Mosaic families brought their children in. And it was... It was amazing. Uh, we had like 30 people standing in the hallway that couldn't get seats. And I was thinking about there was all this orchestra and, and just amazing production. And there was a time where uh, William Sloan Coffin, a great preacher, did an Easter sunrise service on the rim of the Grand Canyon. And he was proclaiming Easter, and when they read the story and they said the stone was rolled away, a 7,000-pound boulder was let go from a scaffolding and banged its way down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. A reporter was there and asked William Sloan Coffin after, said, was that a little over the top? Was that too much theater? And William Sloan Coffin said, the gospel of Jesus Christ demands that kind of theater and that kind of majesty. And there's times where words uh, aren't, don't seem to be enough. And that's why Handel had to put the, the story to music, and that's why John didn't talk about angels and shepherds and, and, and wise men, but said in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, watch this, and the Word was God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing came into being, and the Word became flesh. Read these words with John. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and full of truth. I'm just going to stop with that. The word became flesh. That's revolutionary. I mean, we've, we've turned this Christmas story kind of into this sappy sentimentality and we forget that when it was first proclaimed in this way by John, it would have shaken the world to its core. Both Jew and Gentile in the first century world, the Jewish 
uh, constituency, the Greco-Roman constituency, they would have heard this as, as, as just life-altering, life-changing. The word became flesh. See, for our Jewish brothers and neighbors, do you, friends, do you know? The word is sacred. When you go to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, do you know what that is? That children are being called to what? To the word. Called to the Torah. The word was the way that we knew God. The word was the way God made himself known. Calling Abraham and Sarah, speaking through the burning bush. Our God was not remote. Our God was not an absentee landlord because we had his word. In the beginning, God spoke. Let there be light. And there was light. And the word for our Jewish friends is sacred. I, I live on Rabbi Row, if you don't know that, in Cleveland. Uh, I, I live on, you can't get to my house these days because Shaker Circle and Pepper Pike blew up. I don't know if you read about it. It did. It just blew up. So there's no traffic on my street now. It's a little block that goes down to the, to the, uh, uh, you know, the synagogues. And, um, and I, it's not hard to find my house at Christmas um, because I have five rabbis and six canters as neighbors. Um, I was putting up my lights on my street, and, uh, and one of the workers was, I, we've made friends with these workers because they're being treated so poorly. It's an inconvenience, but, so, you know, it's their job. And so Terry and I have been out with them and talking with them, and I was putting up my lights, and one of the workers was just laughing and said, you have to be really committed for Christmas because nobody's going to see those. Like, the road is closed. <laughs> and I'm like, why, Will? And one of my neighbors is Rabbi Steve Weiss. He's the lead rabbi at B'nai Yishurim. He is my spiritual brother and friend. And we were, our staffs do stuff together, our church and that synagogue. We have such a great relationship. And our staff was over there. And, and one day, Steve got very serious, Rabbi Steve, and he looked at Pastor Terry and I and said, may I show you the scrolls? And we went up there and they opened the inner sanctum and there was the word, the scrolls. Two of those scrolls survived the Holocaust from Germany, and now Benai Yisharm treasures those scrolls, and he held those scrolls as though he was holding the jewels of the universe in his hands, and he was basically saying to us, Terry, Chip, behold the word. And John said, that word became flesh. Oh, my goodness. Do you hear how they would have heard that? And the, Gre the Greeks would have been in the same quandary because the Greeks, for them, the word meant the word logos. And that's the New Testament was written in Greek. I know some people think it was written in King James English in the 1600s. It was written a little earlier than that. It was written in Koine Greek. And when it would say the word became flesh, it was logos. And for the Greek philosophers, for Plato, for Aristotle, for Socrates, for that great school of thought, they believed that at the center of the universe was logos, was word. All creativity, all human reason, everything that is came out of the logos. That's why we get our word logic and reason from logos. And that became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Do you hear how revolutionary this is? Christmas ought to change you. I love how Pastor Steve preached last week, and he talked about that John reduces, whenever John talks about Jesus, he talks about him as either light or truth or life. 
And he said, by the light of the gospel, we should see ourselves and it should bring change in us. But he said, some preferred the darkness over the light because we're too afraid to look at what we might see. And so we turn Christmas into a concert and into music at the mall instead of realizing the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. You know, there was, we was listening to Handel's Messiah this morning, um, and I remembered a writer that I had read. She's a Christian author now, but she had done like a lot do becoming young adults when she went to college, even though she was raised in the faith. She was a member of her church choir in high school, and, but when she got to college, she decided to become an atheist. That was in vogue. You got to rebel against something, right? And so she, she got into something, I, I don't know if uh, if you millennials or Gen Xers, but us boomers remember, anybody remember Transcendental Meditation? Real popular in the 70s and 80s, man. Um, Pastor Terry was at Woodstock. They did LSD, we did Transcendental Meditation, right? Um, and, and Transcendental Meditation was your way to escape. And, 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 you know, and so she went to find herself through Transcendental Meditation, because I don't believe in God anymore. And she found at her college a TM therapist, a transcendental meditation guide, guru, and went to him daily. And her problem was every time she would go to meditate, words from Handel's Messiah that she had sang in her choir kept coming into her brain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. She couldn't get rid of it, and she went to her therapist, and he said, block it out. That's what meditation's supposed to do. You're not doing this right. Go back and meditate until you don't hear that stuff anymore. And she went back in her closet to meditate, and all she heard, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And she knew that the word had become flesh and Jesus was pursuing her, even in her darkness. The word becomes flesh and dwells amongst us. I was thinking, hearing Handel's Messiah this morning. This wasn't in my notes today, but the choir just messed me up. And uh, I remembered one of my favorite stories. I was a seminary student at Princeton in Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, in Princeton, New Jersey, your news comes from New York City. You, you get to all your New York media, you, get, you read the New York Times. And I remember as a seminary student, I was reading the New York Times, this was back in 1990, and there was, a, there was an article that said, the Messiah has been found. Wow! Even in New York! And so I read the article, and it was interesting that there was a high school music teacher named David Stork, and he had gone to the Brooklyn Public Library to check out a copy of Handel's Messiah to teach his school choir that, that score. And, and so well, back then, I know you millennials like, aren't going to understand this. Most of you don't even know what a keyboard is. But uh, back then, they didn't have barcodes to scan in 1990, so you had to actually input the number. Of the, I know it seems silly. We actually had phones you put a quarter into too, but it's a good movie, rent it. But anyhow, they had to type in the barcode, and the person typing it in mistyped a number. So as David Stork checked out Handel's Messiah, in their system, on their computer, it said that the Messiah was still in the curriculum, in the circulation. 
And you know, by the beginning of December, every school teacher and choir director in the church is looking for Handel's Messiah. And they started calling the Brooklyn Public Library, and they're like, it says it's in the computer, but we can't find it. And they searched through the aisles, and they went into the archives, and it was like this search and rescue by these librarians in the, one of the biggest public libraries in the country looking for Handel's Messiah. And there was a journalist from the New York Times that was doing research there the day David Stork brought his Messiah back and set it down on the curriculum circulation desk. And he said that the look on this music teacher's face was priceless as the librarian began to dance and sing. The Messiah is here. The Messiah is back. And that journalist said for three wonderful seconds, every head in that library turned to look with great expectation. But alas, after these few moments of exhilaration, it was back to work and back to business as usual. Friends, the word did not become flesh for us to go back to work and business as usual. Christmas ought to produce change in us. When God has gone to this extent, he didn't become flesh so we could just hum a few tunes and give a few gifts and, and feel warm fuzzies for a few weeks and then back to work and business as usual. So there's a million things I could say, but here's three things I want to leave with you today that Christmas ought to produce this kind of change in your life. The first one is this. Christmas brings comfort in the face of suffering. Christmas ought to do that for you. You know, when Paul was writing to a church in 2 Corinthians, a church that was struggling, and, and he went back to Christmas, and he said that, that the God of, of Jesus Christ, um, 2 Corinthians 1, it's coming. That praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, read this, and the God of all comfort, who what, in case you didn't hear it, comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort. Are you hearing this? <laughs> we ourselves receive from God, for just as we share uh, abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. There was a pastor named Bob Page, and he uh, was a very well-known pastor, and his wife Lisa died uh, a very di after a very difficult bout with cancer. And one of his closest friends sent him this passage and said, I pray that the great comforter might bring you comfort. And Bob Page said, you know what? It's not just comfort. He said it's comfort with strength. It's comfort with teeth in it. See, if the thing with Christmas is that if God cared enough to come into the flesh. In fact, I love that word flesh in the Greek. You know what it literally means? Meat. But it would be really bad to be like, and the word became meat. That'd be like calling Die Hard a Christmas movie. I'm just saying. <laughs> but that's, John used that word. You know why? Because he wanted us to know Jesus didn't just appear. He, didn't, he wasn't a hologram. He literally took on our condition. Came into our situation to bring us great comfort. And see, this should, this should comfort us in two ways. It should comfort us in our mind. And it should comfort us in our hearts. First, in our mind. Because you know, 
Um, if, if someone is, you know, who is very a good person, you've seen this happen, beautiful, wonderful, and they go through incredible suffering, unimaginable suffering. Isn't it natural for all of us to wonder, how could God allow this, right? Rabbi Kushner wrote years ago a book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, as his son was suffering from an incurable disease. That's natural to ask. I know you've asked that. I have too. How could God allow this to happen? And how many of you know religious people are some of the worst counselors? I mean, literally, the worst. Because they come and they say things like this. Well, you know, everything happens for a reason. And God has his reasons. And it's too complicated for us to understand. So you just have to have faith. Anybody got counseling like that? Didn't it infuriate you? Didn't you just like want to choke them? Like, it's not helpful, and it seems so shallow, and it actually seems a little callous. And let me tell you, if you ever get counseling that, from that from a religious person, at that point, it's more about them than it is about you. They're really preaching to themselves because they can't stand to look at that suffering. And so they say, well, you know, it all happens for a reason, and God has his reasons. It's complicated. Just have faith. And you just want to smack them upside the head. I'm sorry. I'm being honest. Right? But... When John says the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and we've seen his glory in what? In a suffering servant. In one who is tested in every way that we are without sin. What that does for me is I understand I may not know why this is happening, but I know why it isn't happening. It can't be that God doesn't care. It can't be that God is a remote God out there somewhere. It can't be that God doesn't understand what I'm going through. And Christmas says to us that there is real comfort in knowing that God came to us as one of us. And there's real power, empowerment for the heart when we experience that. Do you, you know, when, when we see Jesus in the flesh, rejected, suffering, going through, tested in every way that we are, it empowers us. The best example I could give that to you was, was the horrible African slave trade in America. One of the, one of the worst experiences. We're still paying the price of our original sin in this country. Horror beyond imagine. And do you know what happened? The slave owners in the South tried to give a censored Christianity to make the slaves manageable. So they preached a cardboard Christianity. In fact, you know there was never one sermon in the South during slavery that came from the book of Exodus. Did you want to go preach that one? With a God who delivered the slaves, right? So they gave this censored Christianity, and, and, the, and the slaves in the South nodded their heads politely. But I got the privilege to study with Albert Rabateau. If you don't know him, he is the foremost expert in the world on real slave religion. And they nodded their head at masses service. But you know what? At night, they went out on their own and had real church. And they read about the real Jesus. The one who said that the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to bring sight to the blind, and to set the captives free. And that real Jesus gave them incredible comfort and a horrendous experience so that they could write the spirituals and sing things like, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody but Jesus. 
And it was that Jesus that gave visions to Harriet Tubman. It was that Jesus that founded the Underground Railroad. It was that Jesus that gave voice to Sojourner Truth. It was that Jesus that taught them to resist. It was that Jesus who they found out was not with the slave owners, but was with them in their misery. And he became their liberator. And he became their savior. And he empowered them to resist evil. And I hope you know the three greatest slave rebellions, Nat Turner, Denmark Vesey, and Gabriel Prosser, were all preachers. Because God is with us in our suffering. God is comforting and working out our salvation in resistance to the evil powers of this world. So when you're in it, when you're really in it, and you're going through it, and some well-meaning person who's never gone through what you've gone through comes by and says, Oh, buckle up, just have faith. You really want to say to them, don't waste your oxygen because you have no idea what you're talking about. But when Jesus comes up alongside you and you know you're in the presence of one who has gone through everything that you're going through and 10 times more, you listen to that person, don't you? You lean into that person. So you're feeling lonely? So was he. You're feeling abandoned? So was he. Ultimately abandoned. He knocked on heaven's door at the cross and hell was open to him. The father rejected him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken him? He was ultimately rejected, so we never will be. Feel betrayed? So was he. Frightened facing death? So was he. Feeling like God doesn't answer your prayers? So was he. Going to the Garden of Gethsemane, Father made this cup pass, and his prayer was unanswered. He has gone through everything and more than we will ever go through because the Word became flesh because of Christmas. And that can give us great comfort, and that can help us face suffering. Let me be quick. The second thing that Christmas should bring us, the change it should create, is it should bring us a powerful incentive to serve. There was a very famous case in New York City in 1963. It was a murder case, a Kitty Genovese. And it was the first time that it was recorded that um, human beings are not as nice as they probably should be. Because Kitty Genovese was murdered near her apartment building, and she was shrieking and screaming for help. And in that day and age, you know, the windows were open and everything. And the reporters went through that apartment building, and they found out that every that a numerous percentage of people heard this happening, but did nothing. In fact, they didn't even call it in. And when they interviewed every one of them that didn't do anything, you know what they said? I didn't want to get... Christmas says God got involved. God heard the cries of God's people. What did he say to Moses at the burning bush? I have heard my people's cries. What did he say to Cain after he murdered his brother Abel? I have heard Abel's blood crying up to me from the ground. What did he say to Hagar, banished on a death sentence with her child in one of the weakest moments of a family of faith, Abraham and Sarah? And when Hagar set Ishmael under a bush and could not even watch him die, The angel of the Lord showed up and said, The Lord has heard the cries of this child. 
and has brought a well for them in the middle of the wilderness. You know what Christmas says to us? If God got involved, so should we. If we who believe in this God who became flesh, who made himself vulnerable, who came down, so should we. It should trigger in us this kind of incentive to serve. Yeah, we'll get vulnerable. Yeah, if you go down, you might get killed. Yeah, if you call it in, his friends, the murderer's friends might come visit your house. But if Jesus Christ came down, humbled himself to the point of a servant, and was obedient even unto death, death on a cross, it should change us, and so should we. I read something when I was a seminary student. It's an old uh, sermon by B.B. Warfield that he preached called Imitating the Incarnation. And here's what he wrote. He said, Jesus was led to forget himself in the needs of others. Self-sacrifice brought Jesus Christ into the world. And self-sacrifice will lead his followers not away from the world, but into the midst of the world. So wherever people suffer, there will we be with comfort. Wherever people strive, there will we be to help. Wherever people fall, there will we be to uplift Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our time and our neighbors. It means absorption in them. It means to forget ourselves in service to others. It means entering into every person's hopes and fears. It means many-sidedness of spirits and a multiplicity of sympathies. It means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives. Binding ourselves to a thousand souls through such love and sympathy. Sympathy, I'm stuck in nine o'clock symphony, a symphony of sympathy. That's my next sermon for the new year. But we're bound to them with such love and sympathy that their lives become ours. Christmas should trigger that because God got involved, so should we. You know, you saw the video on Kids Club. When I first came here to Garfield 15 years ago, I felt that the only measure of a church's effectiveness is its ability to minister to the weakest members of their community. And the weakest member of our community is children in poverty living in Cleveland. And so we said we cannot be a church and not be out there in the midst of children in poverty in Cleveland. So we began something called Urban Reach, and we were in the Cleveland City School System, and we adopted a school back then, Miles School, and we had 54 people tutoring and mentoring in that school, and we took that school in three years from academic emergency to continuous improvement so that they got state funding for the very first time. And we were involved there, and, and now that we've shifted into South Euclid Lindhurst to our South Euclid campus, now we're involved in the South Euclid Lindhurst schools where 84% of students are on free lunches, so there's great need. And as you heard the missionary work that's happening at Kids Club, that we're there on the ground. We're not running from that neighborhood. We're investing in that neighborhood. When we decide on a second campus, we didn't go to North Royalton. We didn't go to Avon. We didn't go out where the money is. We went where the need was. We went to communities where people are living so that we could be the presence of God there. And I'll never forget when we first started doing this ministry, there was a good friend of mine and, and she would say, I, I really want to go out there in the schools. I really want to be with the kids, but it would break my heart so much that, that I don't think I could take it. And trying to be a good pastor, I said, I understand that you're setting your boundaries. I get it. That's something you shouldn't do. And I'm mad at myself now that I didn't say to her because Jesus got involved. So should you care that much. We should care that much. 
Because God so what? Cared about us, loved us. That he gave everything he had. So Christmas should change us by bringing comfort that we can face suffering and bring us an incredible desire to serve. And finally, Christmas should change us because it brings a hope that does not disappoint. Where did I get that from? Romans 5. It's not a Christmas verse, but it ought to be. Where Paul writes, hope does not disappoint us. Why? Because God's love's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Right? The word became flesh. And now we have a hope that doesn't make any sense. Right? I, when it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling place among us, in the Greek that literally means that God pitched his tent in our midst. And I've always preached that through the years, saying that God moved into our neighborhood. Now in the big picture, that's true. But the truth is, in that day and age, not many people lived in tents. What it really is saying is the tent that was being talked about was the tent of the tabernacle. It was, the, it was God's presence that the, that the Ark of the Covenant was under the tent before it was in the temple. And it says that God, the Word became flesh and God tabernacled among us. See, where the Ark of the Covenant was in the tent, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, it was divided by a curtain, right? And the only person that could go back there was the high priest on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur, and they put a rope around him afraid he would die so they could pull him out if he did. And now it says, because the word became flesh, the tabernacle is not behind the curtain. The tabernacle is not behind some religious leader. God is tabernacling amongst us. We can touch him. We can experience him. So when Jesus died, what happened? The veil tore from top to bottom so we know who did it. So now we have complete access to God. And that gives us hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. And hope is one of the three-legged stools of everything that the universe comes down to, right? Paul said all things can be reduced to what? Faith, hope, and love. And we have this hope now because, because God came to us. He said, not just the law of Moses, but, but God. The very presence of God came into our world and tore down the veil so that now we have this what they called in Hebrews, sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That if God is for us, who can be against us? And I was thinking about that. I read, I'm closed with this. I read about a woman, a hope bearer. I think maybe on my gravestone, I just wanted to put, he was a peddler of hope. <laughs> There's so much hopelessness in our world right now. Do not lose hope. Do not buy into that dark story. There is great hope. I watched our children this morning sing. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, there were about 40 kids up there. You know, when I came to Garfield 15 years ago, we had literally 15 children in children's ministry. And I brought them three. <laughs> Do you know today, there's 150 kids in our children's ministry. Ten times that many. And let me tell you, I watched these 30 or 40 ambassadors, every tongue, tribe, and nation up there singing. And let me tell you, friends, they don't know how to be divided. They'll learn it from us if we're not careful. And we need to teach a better way. Because you know what? They are full of hope. And God help a world that extinguishes that. 
And as I looked at those Hope Ambassadors, I read in 2009 of a woman named Betty Tucker. Betty Tucker uh, was, the Chicago Tribune wrote about her, was a night cook at Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago. She decided to cook nights for 43 years. I don't know if she's still here, there, 10 years later. But in 2009, they honored her. 43 years. And she wanted to do the night shift. You know why? She said because as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, she wanted to be there to minister to parents who couldn't sleep. Cooked in that hospital for 43 years. One night, the reporter was there, and they watched her minister to a woman whose three-year-old had fallen from a second-story window. And 10 minutes later, minister to a mother of a 17-year-old who had a rare form of leukemia. And 10 minutes later, minister to another couple whose daughter got her license at 16 and went out and totaled her car and was in a coma. And Betty would say only three words. Actually, three plus three. God loves you. Don't lose hope. And they interviewed her, and this is what Betty wrote. She said, I'm a praying lady. I pray every night for every room and every person in the hospital. I start with the basement, and I go up floor by floor, room by room. I pray for the children. I pray for the families. I pray for the nurses and the doctors. I say every night while I'm driving in on the expressway, Oh, Lord, I don't know what I'll face tonight, but I'll pray that you'll use me. So that's somebody that knows Christmas. And here's what the reporter wrote about Miss Betty, what they call her. She said this, it just might be that the divine helping on the side is the most essential item on Miss Betty's menu. The one she stirs in every broth and every whisper. The ingredient that makes her, watch this, the perpetual light shining in the all-night kitchen at Children's Memorial Hospital. Christmas ought to bring that kind of change. The word became flesh so that we could be hope bearers that our God is alive, that our God is real, that our God was willing to become flesh and dwell amongst us. And we have seen his glory as he's tabernacled among us. Not listened to a great song, not heard an interesting message, but beheld his glory as he became flesh. Grab hold of that with both hands. And don't just go back to work and business as usual. Let Christmas leave its mark. Amen?